four driving forces with Celeste Katz and Jeff Simmons coming up. Good afternoon and welcome to Driving Forces, our first episode of the new year of 2019. This is a weekly show about politics and policy and a chance for you to tell us what's on your mind. I'm Jeff Simmons, back after a winter holiday break, and joining me today is my lovely co-host, Celeste Katz. Welcome, Celeste. I missed you, Jeff. I really missed you. I thought of you a lot. I followed... uh, of course, politics and government the entire time. I couldn't officially take a break, although there was a little celebrity angle to my travels because while I was in Milwaukee, that's when Penny Marshall had uh, passed away. So I saw uh, a lot of uh, theme songs being played in bars that weekend. Uh, Well, I'm glad you're back with us, absolutely. And uh, I I hope you had a good trip, but it's uh, always good to be back here in the studio with you. So I'm curious, did you get a chance, I should have asked you this before, did you get a chance to watch the uh, governor's inaugural speech or Tish James's speech, any of them this week? To be honest with you, I read the speeches um, rather than watch them so I could, uh, you know, get an idea of what was said, but I did not, uh, I'm not a big TV watcher, Jeff, I gotta be honest with you. You like to live rather well, than watch. Well, well, well except for C-SPAN. I really like I, I really like C-SPAN. Reggie's just like, "Oh for God's sake." No, I love C-SPAN. So we've got a lot going on this week obviously. The legislature is back in session. We had uh, movement in uh, in Washington DC today which we will be able to talk about in a little while with uh, some of our guests. Uh, inaugurations taking place, um, many new faces in Congress, uh, some of whom uh, you've interviewed over the uh, last few months. Uh, issues that our state and federal legislators plan to take up uh, and Washington bracing for potentially a longer shutdown. We're in our 13th day right now and it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight. No, the, the uh, president says it could be a while. I think he actually just made a uh, surprise appearance in the Brady briefing room. So uh, we can check in and see what's uh, what's up with that. But, uh, yeah, a lot of changes going on. Uh, you know, Secretary of Defense uh, uh, out and uh, people uh, sort of moving the chairs around. Uh, new Speaker of the House elected, Nancy Pelosi, re-elected, re-elected, uh, you know, f- uh, still the only woman to have held that job. So we will see how well she gets along with uh, some of the new members of the conference. And, um, and not full Democratic support because the vote came down to 220 to 192 and uh, that had 15 Democrats rejecting her, including one of our guests today, uh, newly installed Congressman Max Rose, who will be on uh, later this hour. Right, right. So, look, I mean, certainly a pretty good showing, you know, from such a, a uh, you know, diverse uh, group of people that's, uh, you know, not not such a, a bad score in the end. But, you know, now it's, it's uh, her responsibility to lead. Now it's her responsibility to uh, to get everyone going in the same direction and try to get stuff done while working with the Republican Senate and the president. And what's interesting and timely for our show today mm-hmm. actually is one of the legislative priorities that had come up was expanding voter rights 
that one of the measures was to uh, establish a nationwide automatic voter registration system, something we're going to talk about later on in the second half hour of the show with our third guest today. But that'll bring us up to our first guest, uh, who you can introduce. Oh, why, why, th- why thank you? Why thank you, Jeff Simmons? <laughs> <laughs> I did miss you. You're probably like God. All this, all this, uh, all this moaning and groaning on the radio. So okay, well, uh, if you're just joining us, by the way, again, this is WBAI 99.5 FM, and streaming live on WBAI.org. Our first guest up today is Eduardo Castell, uh, managing partner at Miram Group. He's one of the leading uh, political strategists in the city, government relation guys. Um, he advises elected officials and senior level executives of corporations, trade groups, labor unions, nonprofits, uh, all about the uh, public affairs, planning, communications. He led three historic campaigns as campaign manager for Bill Thompson for New York City Controller, uh, and he was lead consultant for Eric Gonzalez for Brooklyn District Attorney 2017, and won Letitia James for New York City Public Advocate in 2013. So, Mr. Castell, it is a pleasure to have you on the program. Greetings, and uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Celeste and Jeff. Happy New Year to all of you. It's a pleasure to join you and your listeners. And I'm I'm so astounded by the collegiality you guys have. It's nothing like Albany. <laughs> There's nothing quite like Albany, Eddie, right? <laughs> no, they can play nice too. Just joking. So we were just talking about the governor's inaugural remarks this week. So we'd like to start off with a focus on the state, and then we uh, politics, and then move on to national. Give us a lay of the land in Albany. I mean, Andrew Cuomo set an ambitious agenda for his first 100 days in this third term. How do you think he's going to, how much do you think he's going to be able to accomplish in this time? Um, well, that's a good question. Uh, and as you know, Jeff, he is an ambitious governor. Um, but it, there is a lot of excitement about the new Senate, uh, Senate Democratic majority. Uh, and I think that um, you know, that creates a level of expectations. In 2018, we also experienced a very activated electorate. I mean, turnout was at record levels across the state, mostly due to Trump. Um, but again, all of that, both this, this new Senate Democratic majority, the energized uh, electoral base, particularly among the Democrats, that really translates into heightened expectations. And obviously, I think the governor is very astute and has his pulse on the electorate. So he's coming out strong um, with an agenda. Now, regarding how much he might be able to accomplish, I believe most of it. Um, Remember, many of these issues, uh, abortion protections, more gun control, tenant protections, voting reforms, are issues that the Assembly has either, um, you know, very robustly discussed or even moved in some cases in the past. And many of the newly minted Senate Dems ran on some of these issues. So I think he's going to find a receptive audience in the legislature. However, both the devil and the debate will be in the details um, and where there could be points of disagreement. So I don't think everything is as easy as it looks. Uh, conceptually, I think there'll be a lot of agreement. They're going to have to, to come to terms and negotiate the particulars. But I think there is a good level of optimism that I think he can accomplish quite a bit of it. 
So in terms of what he uh, can do, there obviously there's going to be some uh, some areas where compromise will be easier to find and some areas where it's going to be tougher. Um, looking at national politics, for example, I'm always thinking, why didn't they just go for infrastructure first? Everyone likes infrastructure. So, you know, as opposed to some of these uh, right. thornier issues like the wall, and I understand about pleasing the base and all that, but... Uh, when you look at the governor and you look at the, uh, you know, the new legislature, like, where would you suggest that they sort of jump off? Is there a way to, to sort of ease into the pool or you'd have to, like, dive right in and hit your head on the bottom, essentially? Well, I, I, I think you, you do want to get some wins out early. I believe, particularly, I think the Senate Dems, because they're the, they're the new, you know, the new kids on the block, so to speak. Right. So I think they want to get something um, done legislatively. Now, typically, in the legislature, you don't have a lot of activity in the first couple of months. You have a focus on the budget in the first couple of months. The budget has to be approved by the um, by April 1st. And, you know, by the time the governor presents the executive budget sometime in, in mid to late January, um, the, the legislature starts their hearings. Things don't really pick up throughout, I'd say, the hearings throughout February and early March. Things don't really pick up from a negotiating standpoint into March. So there isn't a lot of legislation done when there is is things that usually gets thrown into the budget as part of the three-way give and take. Um, I think this year may be different because, for the reasons I I said earlier, I think the heightened expectations from the electorate, I think the Senate wanted to wanting to prove that there is a clear distinction that you elected us for a reason. We're here to do things that couldn't get done before. And I don't think they want to wait till May and June, which is typically when you have the end of the, uh, not the budget season, but the legislative season, I would say, right. Um, For things to get done. So I think you're going to have them try to move some things quickly that everyone can agree on. I think certainly abortion rights is one of those um, that, We'll fly through the assembly. We'll get support with this number of Senate Democrats and progressive Senate Democrats. In the past, there were Senate Democrats who were more conservative who didn't support abortion rights. And now I think with the number that you have, that won't be the case. So I think there will be some things like that that they will want to grab a couple of low-hanging fruit, have some things to, uh, to wave around, and then really then get into the, the sausage-making of the budget. So you talk about abortion rights, the Reproductive Health Act. What about marijuana legalization? Because even when the uh, what Mitchell Moss's study came out of NYU a few weeks ago, there was immediate uh, difference of opinion about whether the you know the funding, uh, the uh, revenue that would be generated should go to um, what defray the MTA's costs, right, right. and others thought it should go more towards education. Do you think you're going to see a lot of fighting over this? I don't know if fighting is the right word, but I believe that this is one of those areas where there is a lot of ground that we have to plow first, right? I think uh, folks are a little seduced by the numbers and looking at that and what can be raised and using that to plug into a lot of different things. Um, I-, I believe there has to be some some care and concern, and you're seeing that from medical professionals to other policy advocates are saying, yes, um, um, we do need to, to do, um, you know, reform the marijuana laws, but we need to do it in a way that's sensible and thoughtful. I don't think this is going to be one of those issues that's going to get done 
in January, let's say, or February, I believe this one will be more. If it's done, it'll be done in the back end post-budget. So, Eddie, had you been, just out of curiosity, had you been on Ellis Island for the event this week? I, 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 I was not, unfortunately. I was uh, sick at home with a, with a horrible cold, uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, so I missed it. I, I feel your pain. I've been under was supposed th- to be, was supposed to be, but couldn't. But, okay, then that brings me to my next question. I was at home watching New York One, and when uh, Cuomo started to run his uh, commercial, uh, New York One went away from it to say, you know, we are. it's coming across as a sort of like a campaign commercial and we're not going to be running this. And so Liz Benjamin and Errol Lewis talked yeah. over it at that point. What was your impression of the commercial? And do you think Andrew Cuomo was setting the stage for a presidential run this week? Well, I think, uh, first of all, it was a good commercial, right? He, he, he does those uh, big picture presentations if you've ever been to any of his state of the uh, of state addresses for the past you know eight years right um, not that uncommon for him to start with a video to both add some humor some vision and accomplishments so I, I don't think it was that different from what some of the things he's done in the past and some of the things that he's done very well you know he sort of took the state of the state, from used to be given by the governors in the assembly chambers. And he brought it over to the convention hall and made it a much bigger show. So, again, this was not something new. I thought it was good. I think the question of is he setting up his presidential run, I don't think right now one particular speech does it. I think he's obviously been contrasting himself to the federal government uh, and the White House uh, both mostly on policy, less on personal issues, but creating that distinction between the policies down there and the policies he represents and New Yorkers represent. I think he's been very careful about talking about it that way. He hasn't gone to all um, to D.C. a lot. Um, but I think he's certainly, as any governor, been thinking about it. It was a great, uh, I think it was the debate between um, um, uh, Vice President Lloyd Benson was asked, um, have you ever thought about running for president? And he said, no more, no less than the other 99 senators in the chamber, right? <laughs> so I think the same, every governor, if you've been effective, you've been around, and the party's looking for who is going to be the next leader, I'm sure there are plenty of folks, and I know that there are plenty of folks who are talking to him about it and whispering that in his ear. However, I will say, I thought that his comments very recently um, about supporting Joe Biden, I thought were very interesting. Um, I thought it was uh, both very genuine and also very strategic move. Why was it? Um, And let me explain. Yeah. Well, I think, number one, it was genuine. Please use the phrase vice president uh, in the answer somewhere. Okay, uh, so let's go my punchline, okay? <laughs> but I think it, I think it was genuine because if you've seen them together, I was at the convention center. If you guys were out there in Long Island for this year's Democratic convention, I mean, the, the, the genuine relationship between the two seemed very real, right? There's, a, there's both, a, you know, there, there, was, there was a connection there, and I think there was both respect and, and, and mutual admiration. And so I think it was genuine. On the other hand, look, if Biden decides, I, I think he would never think of himself as running against Biden. 
right? So if Biden does run, then guess what? Right, he is, he would be, and Biden wins. He certainly would be uh, an interesting partner and certainly would be among the top potentially Democratic uh, contenders for vice president. So tell the if truth, Biden, this is this is the whole reason why he's redoing LaGuardia, right? Because Joe Biden right. said it was like a third world airport. Joe, Joe, Joe said he didn't get it right. Who's going to change that around? See, we're, and we're, if Biden BAI, doesn't we're run, on top of this right now. We got right. this. You are. I am I'm, I'm not surprised at all. And if Biden doesn't run, guess what? He's He is sort of clearly didn't put himself in front of Joe Biden, as many other folks have. He hung back behind him out of respect. And in addition to their already established relationship, would be in very good stead to potentially get his endorsement and support. So I, I thought it was a very smart, strategic and genuine move and uh, and the sort of moves that Andrew Cuomo is, is sort of known for. Yeah, no, that absolutely, I think that absolutely makes sense. All my, uh, <clears throat> sorry, all my, uh, all my joking aside there, I think that, uh, you know, he did say during the, uh, during the governor's race, during the uh, debates, at one point he said that uh, only if God struck him or something to that effect, that might be a paraphrase, would he, would he not finish his term? But uh, I don't know. I mean, what, what qualifies as a miracle, right? And, and it'll be interesting for me to see. Also, going back to something you were saying uh, a minute ago, uh, you know, if he does spend more time in Washington now, now that there's a, a Democratic House, if he's going to and if New York is going to bring home more from Washington, because I think typically it's uh, most of it's going the other way. Right. And maybe do you think I mean, are we going to be better off now, New Yorkers in any way? I, I think it's a good question. I think so. I really do. I think that one of the stories that got a little lost um, in, in the New York circles, political circles, obviously was the Senate Democrats win. Cuomo wins by a large margin. And then, you know, the Democrats regain the House and the focus on Pelosi and this very progressive wing with Alexandra um, Ocasio-Cortez. But I think what got lost was the incredible dynamic of the New York congressional delegation. Um, and in the New York, we, we also lost who was the most important figure in the New York congressional delegation was Joe Crowley. Right. So it, 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 it did not look good for New York. And then lo and behold, we win. Um, and we have four, four New Yorkers who are chairmen. Uh, first off, Nita Lowy from Westchester, who's chair of the Appropriations Committee, which is the most important committee in the Congress. In the House of Representatives, which is the, 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 the chamber that begins all, all funding and the budget starts there, it is driven by the appropriations subcommittees and the appropriation committee. That is an incredibly powerful position. Um, number two, you have Elliot Engel, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, at a time when the president is clearly sending very mixed messages um, on foreign affairs and on trade, I think having a stable voice in foreign, the Foreign Affairs Committee to represent stability uh, and the fact that that's a New Yorker, I think, is important. And number three, the chair of the Judiciary Committee will be Jerry Nadler from New York, from the west side of New York, which if there is an Im impeachment hearings, that becomes the most the highest profile position in all of Congress, with the exception of maybe the speaker. Um, and then you also have Nydia Velasquez from Brooklyn, who's chair of the Small Business Committee. Additionally, you had Hakeem Jeffries from Brooklyn, who got elected uh, to be 
the chair of the of the Democratic conference and is sort of fifth in line now in a leadership position and really leapfrogged a lot of folks and is really touted, I think, appropriately as an incredible up and comer with a national profile um, and someone who is a bridge a bit between the younger generation of members who are hungry for getting their their chance to lead and the older generation of leaders who've been there a while. And I think Hakeem is bridging that a bit. And so I, I think this is a bit of a, it's a great question, Celeste. I think it's a bit of a lost story that I think New York as a state um, has regained a lot of clout that I think it had many decades ago and had lost. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, um, uh, House Speaker Pelosi was reelected today. Uh, but you had 15 Democrats rejecting her. Is she starting on strong footing or did this weaken her in any way? I don't think so. I, I think the, the, the fact that you had 15, um, only 15 folks after all the noise that there was, right? Um, um, and these were folks who, in a sense, you know, may have campaigned against Nancy Pelosi in swing districts. And had to fulfill pledges that they made to the voters, right? Uh, again, the old Tip O'Neill line, all politics is local. The fact that they voted against her, you don't know what was happening behind the scenes, um, and you don't know what that means moving forward. Are they willing to work for with her? Are they willing to be, uh, um, uh, you know, work with her in the leadership on things that they need to pass and to, to get a Democratic agenda across? I believe Nancy Pelosi is going to be willing to be judged more on what she's able to get done than on the fact of how many votes that she get a, 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 a unanimous vote for speaker. And I think that is really how you're going to measure. You're not going to remember this vote today, um, three months from now, six months from now, nine months from now, a year from now, if they're able to get things done. So at the start of the interview, you talked about turnout being extremely high. And I'm really uh, – fascinated by what we're going to see over the next, what, month and a half, two months uh, leading up to the February 26th special election for a uh, public advocate with what, uh, how many people are running now? 5,000? Yeah, I think it's, it, I think it's up to like 5,000. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's around so, there. So who, who are yep, the, extremely. Oh, go for it, Eddie. Who are the key contenders to watch is, you know, you think we're going to see uh, moderate turnout, very light turnout, or people even paying attention right now? I think it's going to be a very, very um, low turnout race. It's a it's a February race, which is so uncommon. Um, it is, uh, you know, it's not a great time of the year. Um, it is also for a position that isn't as high profile, right? It's not, you know, the mayor or a governor. It's not an executive on that level. It's a position that, and there's even been controversy about the position. Should it exist? Should it not? Um so I think those two reasons, also the way these special elections work, they're nonpartisan elections. So they're going to be all sorts of folks running. They're just going to get on the ballot. It's not like a, a Democratic primary. You're going to feel some folks are going to be coming out for a particular reason. It's neither a general election nor a primary election. It's this very different creature. Um, and look, I think the, certainly the fact that you have a lot of candidates is going to energize folks, as everyone brings, if they've run before, they bring some element of a base vote to the table. But I believe it's, it's going to be a, a low turnout race. 
for a citywide race, it'll be very, very low. Um, and I think it's quite unpredictable. I think, obviously, there are some bigger names. Um, um, Jamani Williams, who ran for lieutenant governor last year, and people thought he was crazy. All of a sudden, he looks like he's you know crazy like a fox um, because he just ran a statewide race, got a lot of name recognition. You know, he was a councilman uh, a couple of months ago, and now he could be a front runner for um, the public advocate's office. Or he is. He's one of the leading front runners. I, I think he has some 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 wind in his sails. But you have the former speaker of the city council, Melissa Marthy Verito, who also served for a number of years, um, not in the citywide post, but a position that has citywide platform. Um, and then, you know, you have other folks who are, I think, smart and aggressive and getting out there, too, like, you know, Michael Blake, who's an assemblyman who has national connections and reputation. So, um, you know, um, Latrice Walker, Rafael Espinoff, there are a number of candidates. I think it's very hard to, to sort of say, here's who's in poll position. But I do believe that the institutional players who are able to get out votes, i.e. unions, I think labor will be important because if they endorse somebody or you have a number of unions endorsing one candidate, they will be moving voters who will definitely come out to support their candidate. So, yeah, no, I, don't, I, think, I do think that's an interesting question, actually, having covered public and advocate races. You, know, you can see on the one hand, there should be a watchdog uh, office to, you know, to keep an eye on the mayor and to uh, give people a place to go. But at the same time, I mean, I, I, th- I remember covering at least one cycle where I believe the runoff election for public advocate was greater than the budget for the entire office. And that kind of makes you wonder, like, do we have nothing else to do with that money or, you know, what's what's going on there? But um, it's yeah. you can't you can't uh, help. I, I, see worked, it as a I worked on budget. that runoff, so I won't comment. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, <laughs> oops. Well, well and, and but it way. was but it, it was wasn't it? It was like 13 or 14 million bucks, wasn't it? It was it was. And, and, and by the way, the, the, that, that gets to an issue that we didn't get to discuss, and I, I believe, Jeff, you mentioned you guys are discussing later, um, which is the issue of voting reform. Um, I believe it is uh, one of the most, if not the most important issue that can be taken up this year in the legislature. I also believe it will be a complicated issue and a difficult issue because it's impacting members very directly and very personally. Um, but I believe it's so, so important. I think it's, it'll be one of the harder things to get done. Um, but it's, you know, anybody who came out in 2018, in this day and age, we have AI and we have driverless cars and we're talking about robots everywhere. And we had our lines in New York because it rained and ballots got wet. Come on. We got to do better than that. And I think we can. And we really need to be thinking not about what we need now, but thinking towards the future. And I think electoral reform is important, the same as we have sometimes in a, a primary election in June for congressional races. And then we have a primary election. Or we have a special election, let's say, in February or April to fill three council seats. And then we have a congressional primary in June for the congressional seats. And then we have primaries in September for uh, assembly and Senate. It's confusing to the electorate. It contributes to lower voter participation. There needs to be common sense and, and, and technology that matches that common sense for supporting the enfranchisement of our vote, which is one of the most important things 
um, as an immigrant who became a U.S. citizen. And one of my proudest moments was after my parents had become, I'd helped them to become citizens to walking them and, and taking them for the, the first time that they voted. And that was an unbelievably proud moment for me as an immigrant. It is, it is uh, disheartening for me to see that we're not opening those doors and enfranchising as many people to vote as possible. So we've got about a minute or two left, uh, and right after you, we're hoping to get a call. You, mean, you won't. You won't let me close on that. You won't let me close on that. So <laughs> no, we actually want to go. <laughs> we, we, we actually want to go towards uh, Lin Manuel Miranda because we know you're going to get us tickets to Hamilton. You know, uh, since you work with him. Uh, anyway, <laughs> more, I, can't more... believe, I can't believe you. I can't believe you tried to out me on that one, Jeff. <laughs> wow, that awkward silence. Really good for radio. <laughs> so just uh, more seriously, what? Um, you know, in the final two minutes, you know, what do you think, you know, we will see in the next, let's say, year as far as people positioning themselves to succeed Mayor de Blasio? Wow, that's a good question. I think there is um, historically um, there are two, two dynamics at play, I would say quickly. Number one is, unfortunately, as soon as you get reelected to your second term, you're considered a lame duck. Yeah. Right. Um, unless, unless you, you know, forcefully, aggressively are addressing issues that really are on the forefront of um, uh, of the electorate's minds and the, and the city's needs. Right. Because I think that's the, the sort of like lame duck kind of, uh, you know, I, I say tongue in cheek a little bit because that's more along the political class. People still obviously see him as the mayor of the city of New York, the people, the person who they rely on to deliver things. So I think that's very, very important. His engagement with that office and his engagement with the electorate and his agenda for the next three years is very important for two things. Number one, it will shape the landscape um, at the moment. Um, and if, if he doesn't define that, somebody else will come in and define that. And I think the person who does that, if that happens, will have an advantage. Number two, uh, particularly for um, elections where you have, uh, you know, somebody who's been in office for eight years, the next mayor is going to be, the, the, that campaign in that election will be uh, uh, a referendum on de Blasio, the same way that Mayor de Blasio in 2013 got elected very much going against stop and frisk and against Bloomberg. Right. Correct. Um, yeah. um, and I, and I think that what you have is that referendum will be on, on that, whether, whether people want a continuation of those policies, progressive policies, um, and, 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 and that, that will, continue the direction of the de Blasio administration, or for whatever reason, whether in substance or in style, in management style, people want something different. Um, the next mayoralty will be shaped by Bill de Blasio, I think, in many ways. Do you think so far as to go back to uh, swing back to Republican? Uh, you know, it's not a it's certainly not unheard of. We had uh, Rudy Giuliani, not, we had, you know, Mike Bloomberg. Well, I mean, you know, he was what was, he was a Democrat. To, and he was a, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard to see right now because like I, I, I think it's hard to see beyond the, the incredible fog that is Donald Trump. Um, number one. 
so at the moment, you know, obviously, if you have in 2020, if Trump wins re-election, I think there will be, again, such, I think, frustration with New York voters who are obviously not going to vote for him that I think it'd be very hard for Republicans to get elected here. And number two, if Democrats take over the White House, I think there will be, again, that excitement. I think it's very hard for Republicans to win in New York City in 2021. Also, the Republican Party is a shell of itself in, at the state level right now. Um, it would need to be a sort of Bloomberg-like, independent, personally funded, who would come in and maybe say, you know, hey, I'm running as a Republican. I think that's the only way. And even then, it doesn't fit in with what the move to lean to the left that the electorate is taking both nationally and in the city. At some point, the pendulum will swing. Don't know if it'll be 2021. Eddie Castell, managing partner at the Moram Group. Thank you for joining Celeste and me today here on Driving Forces. Jeff and Celeste, thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you do, and a pleasure to be on. Talk to you soon. Have a good day. So we are up to our next guest. We have... uh... Celeste, would you? Oh, I'll go for it. Our next guest is Max Rose, who was sworn in earlier today to represent New York's 11th congressional district, which includes Staten Island and parts of southern Brooklyn. He defeated the incumbent Republican Dan Donovan in the only competitive race for Congress in the city in the midterm elections. And by the way, Staten Island was the only borough that voted for Donald Trump. The congressman is a U.S. Army veteran who served as a platoon leader in Afghanistan, for which he received a Bronze Star and Purple Heart. And he is the or was the first post 9-11 combat veteran to run for office in New York City. He's a Brooklyn native and currently lives in St. George on Staten Island. Congressman, welcome to Driving Forces. Hey, thank you so much for having me. We recognize that you have a very busy day and you've got a, a series of votes that are going on, so we are not going to take up much of your time. Celeste hey, is hey, going to... I just, I just took my first vote. <laughs> how, ago, so. how do you feel, Congressman? Congressman? Hey. <laughs> you guys can always call me Max. Okay? You I saw you, you, and Max. Your, you and your wife got the, the matching pins now. You're good to go, right? We do. We're, we're, very, we're very proud of our matching pins. So just just for the uh, just for the listeners here though, uh, uh, how do you, really what is it like? I mean, this is your you know the first moments of of being in Congress. What does that feel like to you? Well, so this is not normal. What's happening right now? Normally, today is a day of there's a lot. There's pop and there's circumstance and there's family and it's a moment for joy and reflection. But we are in the midst right now of a crisis and a national disgrace. And so there's, we have got to get right to work. Right now, the government is shut down, okay? The government is shut down because this president has used a government shutdown as a negotiating tactic. That's now accepted practice in this country, and it is absolutely wrong. So we're taking action right away to pass the same resolutions that the Senate passed, the same basic funding bill, so we can then move on to have a sensible and civil uh, debate and discussion in the halls of Congress without the government being shot down. So I got to ask you, and if you're just joining us, uh, by the way, this is Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM New York, streaming live on WBAI.org. We are talking to newly elected, newly sworn in Congressman Max Rose. Uh, I'm Celeste Katz here with Jeff Simmons. Um, So, Congressman, you talked about civility, and I just got to take two seconds to ask you. There were only a few members of the the new group that joined the Democratic Conference uh, that 
did not support Nancy Pelosi for speaker. I believe you were one of them. Can you just tell us uh, who you voted for and why? Yes, of course. Now, I, I, you should note that I did vote for somebody else, uh, but I did it in a very civil manner. Uh, and now I am looking forward to getting to work um, with Leader Pelosi at the helm um, in a, you know, albeit divided government. So this, this vote that I took today should come as no surprise to anybody huh? about the fact that I was not going to be a supporter of Speaker Pelosi. And guess what? That's exactly what I did. Now, that's not the only thing I ran on. That would have been ludicrous. I also ran on talking about a generations-long infrastructure bill. I talked about banning the sales of AR-15s in this country. I spoke about doing something about the opioid epidemic, something about the commuting nightmare, and, and also, of course, something about the toxic and horrendous nature of corporate money and special interest money in our politics. You're going to see me working on those things, too. The days of people just running for office, spewing out poll-tested lines, and then eking out a 51% victory and ignoring everything they spoke about, those days have got to be done because we have to earn people's trust again. They've rightfully lost it. And once we earn their trust, which I sincerely believe is possible, we'll be able to do unbelievable things in this country. So, Congressman, we had a guest on a few weeks ago, Paul Rykoff of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, to, to talk about his advocacy for federal legislation for medical marijuana. Um, your thoughts on this? Yes, I'm 100 percent behind that. Um, you know, whether it is someone dealing with PTSD or another ailment, there's no reason why veterans should not have access to exactly the type of treatment and medication that they deserve. Um, and I, I certainly think when it comes to marijuana policy at the federal level, the, the drug certainly needs to be descheduled as well. Um, there, there's all the sense in the world uh, when, when it comes to that piece of policy. Uh, and I, I certainly, um, especially making sure that my fellow vets can get access to medical marijuana um, through the VA. That's something I, I'm very serious about doing. Do you feel our president the, or the administration has done enough to support our nation's veterans? No, no. There, there's, there's far more work to be done. You just gave a great example. Um, for basically a generation now, <clears throat> what has happened is that we have chronically defunded the VA and then certain entities, certain groups, have pointed to the VA's failures as a sign of government failure and also a sign that the institution needs to be privatized. I am absolutely opposed to that. We made a promise, a pledge to, to soldiers who, may I add, this new generation of soldiers have deployed one, two, three, four, five times to Iraq and Afghanistan and throughout the world, and we owe them a tremendous amount, and the highest quality care, world-class health care, is just the start. You know, I've got a big problem with the way we treat veterans in this country. We thank God, thank them for their service now. Uh, the days in which we spit at vets is behind us. But with that being said, we have to not only treat veterans like national uh, treasures uh, and victims, but as national assets. Folks who have done unbelievable things at an incredibly early age, and now we've got to put them back to work here at home. Now, I'm going to be a real advocate for that. 
And speaking of the people here at home, some of them might be affected by the shutdown. We mentioned it a little bit earlier uh, uh, in the program. But I mean, now that you're in office, what do you see? Uh, what do you see yourself doing to get this done? There are people out there that are not getting services that they need. There are people out there who are aren't getting paid. Uh, no, and they're still doing their job. How okay. unbelievable is that? These folks are still getting the job done for a country that refuses to even compensate them for their services. So how are we going to fix the that? Quality. That's the caliber of the people that we have serving us in the federal government. I'll tell you very simply how we're going to fix that. We are going to pass sensible spending resolutions um, that will allow them, give us the freedom, the space, to have a real civil and comprehensive dialogue about comprehensive immigration reform and border security, one that does not use a government shutdown as a negotiating tactic. Think about this. These are people's lives. It is disgusting, and it should not be socially acceptable behavior in this country and in the greatest body politic the world has ever seen. And we're going to put a stop to it. Uh, also, I mean, speaking of the shutdown, you also made a uh, an announcement about your congressional pay uh, related to the shutdown. Can you tell our listeners what that is? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I, so long as this shutdown goes on, I will not take a cent of salary. Every single cent that I get in salary, I will donate it to a charity in my district. I have been very clear about the fact that I believe the responsibility for this shutdown lays at the president's feet. But with that being said, I could not ever take a salary while this is happening, while they're working and getting no money. So I stand in solidarity with them. I don't deserve a paycheck while they're going without one. So the president actually just made a uh, a bit of a surprise appearance in the uh, in the briefing room. Uh, he just came up and spoke to the press there for uh, for a few moments. There didn't take any questions, but uh, you know he talked about he's been talking about the wall. He's been talking about uh, Mexico paying for the wall and a bunch of different ways, I suppose, than what he was talking about during the campaign. You're familiar with, with all these things. And now that you're a, uh, actually a member of Congress uh, down there in Washington with the president, I mean, how do you feel about trying to work with him? Can you get so, you know, something done? Here? Yeah, let, let, me, let me just take this in two, in two parts. Yeah. Uh, first of all, when it comes to the wall, all right, the wall is a fifth century solution to a 21st century problem. Uh, you show me a 20-foot wall, I'll show you a 22-foot ladder, okay? This is antiquated in every, in every sense of the word. What do we, we also want to bring back cavalry to the U.S. Army. You know, you, you want to bring rowboats to the Navy. This is absurd. It is politics at its, at, at its worst. Uh, we need strong border security. We certainly need sound immigration policies. One that's also fun are immigration courts. No one that deals with the fact that people could overstay their visas. There's a whole sorts of very complex problems that we have got to address in a civil manner. Now, when it comes to this president, though, putting uh, you know uh, this issue, I think um, aside for a moment, look at some of the things that he ran on in 2016. All right, he talked about draining the swamp. He spoke about making our roads and our bridges beautiful again. They're going to be grand. They're going to be the best like they once were, right? He spoke about negotiating the price of pharmaceutical drugs uh, through Medicare. He spoke about uh, protecting Social Security and Medicare for the next generation. He spoke about fair taxation. He said, oh, these hedge funders are getting away with more tax rates than all of us. 
You forget uh, the part where we wiped out ISIS completely, right? <laughs> we get that so all, look, all if you want to care. start working on any of this stuff, I'm, I'm down. I'm ready to go. I will not. Here's what I won't do, okay? And here's what I don't think that the Democratic Party should do. If it helps the American people, we've got to partner with him on it. Okay, we can't start thinking. We can't go down the road and say, well, listen, this is really good policy, but let's just wait until after the 2020 presidential election is finished. Let's just wait, okay? We can't do that. That's wrong. That's exactly what they did to President Obama when they said, when Mitch McConnell stood up in 2011 and said, our singular objective is to make sure that this president does not win a second term. That was un-American, and we and two wrongs do not make a right, and I refuse to be a part of that. And as far as what uh, people at home here are going to be watching for, obviously we have a lot of national issues and we have all this uh, excitement going on with the president, but as far as what people are looking for from you back here um, Brooklyn, Staten Island, you know, what are you going to be getting to work on, on first? What promises are you trying to keep to the people who voted you in? Well, we, look, the people of Staten Island and South Brooklyn are very smart. All right, they understand that you can't just wave a magic wand and solve all their problems. We've got horrendous commuting times, uh, over 100 people dying from overdoses. But I, can't, I have made a pledge, one that I will uh, maintain to the good people of Staten Island and South Brooklyn, that I'm never going to be bought off, ever. I'm going to continue my corporate pact, my federal lobbyist pledge, and I'm only going to build on these anti-corruption measures, hopefully with passing H.R. 1, a, the most comprehensive series of pro-democracy, anti-corruption measures Congress has ever seen. Uh, and, and then we've got to get working on some you know, uh, very realistic measures that can deal with commuting, that can deal with protections against future storms, and so on and so forth. Uh, and we're going to do a great job. Congressman Max Rose, thank you very much for joining Celeste Katz and me here on Driving Forces today. Uh, thank you so much again for having me. We look forward to having you on again. Uh, I'll be back anytime you want. <laughs> Thanks again. We're going to lead into our final guest, Celeste. Yeah, actually, that was uh, that was interesting. It's uh, it's unusual to talk to somebody like that fresh off taking the oath. And <laughs> I did watch a lot of the uh, uh, the swearing in stuff, the uh, well, the speaker's vote, of course, and then uh, all that. It's interesting stuff. But we did get to uh, we were talking about some of this stuff earlier in the program, and this is how everybody gets to be in Congress. So it makes sense uh, if you're just joining us. By the way, one more time, this is WBAI ninety nine point five FM. This is Driving Forces. Uh, this is Jeff Simmons and Celeste Katz. We're here every Thursday at 5. And our final guest today is Sean McElwee. He's the founder of the progressive think tank Data for Progress. He spent half a decade bringing uh, data analysis to progressive advocacy, and his work's been cited by politicians at the state, uh, local, and national level. You may have seen his work in The Times, The Atlantic, The Nation, Vox, and The Washington Post. And uh, his research areas include race, inequality, voting, and money in politics. And the reason we have him on the program today is to talk about voting reform called AVR Now, which is state legislation that would create automatic voter registration. I love talking about voting. So, Sean, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So, uh, what, what sort of uh, got you into this thing in the, in the, uh, in the first place, uh, voting of, of all the, uh, uh, the civil rights that we care about? Why is this the one? Yeah, well, in uh, 2018, New York ranked 48th um, in terms of turnout. Uh, we are way behind other states on things like having access to early voting, having access to easy registration, 
And that means that we have very, very low turnout. And now that we have, um, you know, a new, a new Senate um, and we have a real mandate for leadership, uh, I think that we all feel uh, as advocates that it's time to finally make good on the promise of making New York uh, a place where people have the right to vote. Where should New York State look for a model program? Absolutely. Uh, so the first state to ever pass automatic voter registration uh, was Oregon in 2015. And what we found uh, in a study that I performed of, of Oregon, uh, that that dramatically increased turnout in the state. Um, this was ahead of the 2016 uh, presidential election. And of all states between um, the 2012 and 2016 election cycle, uh, Oregon saw the largest increase in, in turnout. Um, so automatic voter registration is a reform that works to increase turnout. Um, and since Oregon has passed it, we've seen it pass in red states and, and blue states as well. Um, so Alaska passed it through a ballot initiative. Um, Washington and New Jersey uh, both recently passed it, uh, as has Massachusetts, among others. And uh, maybe you could explain a little bit about how it works as somebody who's covered voting and uh, uh, election uh, law and election administration for a while. Uh, you hear people get a little excited sometimes about automatic voter registration because they say, oh, well, just because you have a driver's license, then you'll be registering all these non-citizens to vote and it'll be a disaster and the republic will collapse. So maybe you could take us through that a little bit. Sure. Whenever you register or sorry, whenever you get a driver's license of the DMV, uh, you provide the information uh, that would be necessary to determine citizenship and determine eligibility to vote. So the basic idea behind automatic voter registration is when the government has that information, uh, what they should do is they should uh, check to make sure you're eligible. Uh, if you're eligible to vote, they're going to send you a letter in the mail. Uh, the mail say, the letter will say um, you're going to be registered to vote if there's any reason you should be or if you uh, want to register with a party or if you want to opt out, send back to correct that information or add that new information. Um, and if you do nothing, we're just going to add you to the rolls um, because we check to make sure you're eligible. And what we found is that um, in a lot of cases, um, when we've been asking people at the Department of Motor Vehicles if they want to register, uh, they say no because they don't think of the DMV as a place where they get registered to vote. Um, but when we send them a letter afterwards, uh, most of them are uh, perfectly, perfectly happy to be added to the rolls and perfectly happy to provide information about uh, which part they want to register with. It seems like a much more optimistic scenario right now, given the political equation upstate, uh, even the governor making this a priority within the first 100 days, and even federally, uh, this being something that, uh, what, Nancy Pelosi uh, has made an issue as well, uh, calling for the establishment of a nationwide automatic voter registration system. So are you believing that this is the year, or do you think that this is just going to lay the, the, uh, the, the groundwork for this over the next few years? Uh, no, I think the groundwork's been been laid for several years now. Um, so, you know, AVR now is joining a, a larger coalition of groups um, called Let New York Vote, uh, which includes uh, a, a wide range of groups such as uh, Working Families Party, um, such as, you know, Make the Road and other uh, civic engagement groups. Uh, I think that this, this is the culmination of, of a lot of work that has been done laying the groundwork. Um, we have the electoral mandate. Uh, we have the votes. Um, and it's time to get it done. 
aside from people who say that oh, uh, automatic voter registration might lead to registering people who are not qualified, are not U.S. citizens, or you know maybe in some some other states, uh, people who have lost their right to vote because of a felony conviction, something like that. Um, who doesn't want this, and why do they not want it? Oh, to, to be entirely honest, there, there are not a lot of people who, who don't want it. Um, you know, polling consistently finds this to be a, a policy that has um, large, durable majorities in support of it. And, you know, um, take an instance like Alaska. Um, in, the, in the case of Alaska, um, the automatic voter registration is done through the um, Alaska Permanent Fund, and that was put on the ballot. And at the same time in 2016, as Alaskan voters um, chose Donald Trump, um, for president, they they overwhelmingly chose to pass uh, automatic voter registration into law. Um, we've had uh, <clears throat> lots of states, uh, even West Virginia, um, has has passed into law uh, a form of automatic voter registration. So what we're actually seeing is that um, once people take a a hard look at the facts, take a hard look at the reality that automatic voter registration uh, reduces actually the amount of people who are added to the rolls improperly, uh, makes the rolls cleaner, uh, makes the rolls uh, more modernized and up-to-date, uh, we intend to find bipartisan support for the policy. So, Sean, we've got only about 30 seconds left. Can you uh, tell our listeners how they can find out more about AVR Now? Absolutely. So the website is uh, avrnow.org. Um, that's just A-V-R and then N-O-W dot org. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at Sean McWee, and you can always tweet at me. Uh, and you can also tweet at the uh, Data for Progress handle at Data Progress. Um, when you go to AVR Now, there's a place you can sign up for our newsletter, and, and also you can uh, partner with us uh, in, the, in, the, in order to bring AVR to uh, New York. Sean, thank you so much for joining Celeste and me here on Driving Forces today. Thanks for having me. So we're uh, coming to a close today, our first episode of the new year. Celeste, it is great to be back with you. We'd like to thank our guests, uh, Sean McElwee, who you just heard from uh, the progressive think tank Data for Progress, uh, Eddie Castell, managing partner of the Miram Group, and newly installed Congressman Max Rose, who we hope to have back again. Next week, we're going to focus on keeping New York affordable, and we're looking forward to your thoughts as well. Thank you very much, Reggie, for a wonderful performance on the board, and my lovely co-host, Celeste. Say goodbye. Goodbye. And you could uh, tune in to WBAI.org next Thursday at 5 o'clock. We'll see you then. Kiani Bria, WBAI's local election supervisor with an announcement. WBAI's local station board election will be held from January 7th to February 11th, 2019. For updates, visit WBAI.org and for questions, you may call 413-424-9569 or email les underscore WBAI at pacifica.org. Juliana. 
Juliana Furlano. Hello. So nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. So I hear you're, actually, I don't hear, I know you're doing a new radio show on WBAI. That's right. Starting January 7th, I'm going to be the host of a brand new show in the morning, 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. What are you calling it? It's called Waking Up. And what are you going to do? Well, we're going to help people wake up, both wake up, you know, out of their beds with the kind of news that they need to start their day, but also to keep an awakened perspective on what's going on in the news, both here locally in, you know, New York City, the boroughs and the tri-state area, and also nationally because New York affects the nation, the nation affects New York, and again, WBAI is an independent radio station where you can get perspectives that you're not going to hear on corporate media. So I hope everyone will tune in 7 a.m. Waking Up with Juliana Beginning January 8th, join First Voices Radio every Tuesday at 7 p.m. And after 17 years in the morning, we move to the primetime offering of every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Join the living thoughts of Teokas and Ghost Horse on First Voices Radio. Streaming on WBAI.org. You're invited. On Sunday, January 6th at 11 p.m., Sugar in My Bowl presents Floridian Reads Man, composer, and twin, Marcus Strickland. Marcus Strickland's Twilight Band has a release titled People of the Sun and will be on stage during one of the upcoming New York Winter Jazz Festival Marathon Nights. That's Sunday, January 6th at 11 p.m., right here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org on the web. The General Assembly of the United Nations has declared 2015 to 2024 the International Decade for People of African Descent. The decade is commemorated across the world with remembrances, cultural exhibits, educational forms, and a commitment to end discrimination and human rights violations against people of African descent. The theme of the decade is recognition, justice, and development. While the U.S. government has done little to recognize the decade, civil society groups have organized events and are organizing to pass an official declaration on the rights of people of African descent, modeled after the recently passed Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Advocates are looking for a declaration to include strong protections against discrimination and advocate for the right of African descendants to reparations and to self-determination. On the next Ecologic, Tyson Slocum of Public Citizen and other activists from national organizations will analyze the environmental aspects of the midterm elections. Tune in to Ecologic on Tuesday, January 15th at 8 p.m. to hear Ken Gale and Donna Stein discuss the impacts right here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. Hi, this is DJ Baby K from The Sweet Spot. On the go, but want to support the station dedicated to you, the listener? No problem. Simply dial 
888-444-4444 and text TRANSMIT995 to make a pledge by text. Support WBAI's unique voice and keep us on the air during this critical time. Once again, dial 41444 and text TRANSMIT995 to make your pledge. Thanks for supporting listener-sponsored community radio, WBAI 99.5 FM. All right, and this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. This is a listener-sponsored community radio station providing you a Pacifica state of mind since 1960. The previous program was Driving Forces with Celeste Katz and Jeff Simmons, heard Thursdays at 5 p.m. Stay tuned for the WBAI Evening News with Paul DiRienzo.